0: Thomas Aquinas was the greatest figure in the development of the medieval philosophy of Christianity called scholasticism, and his philosophy, which is described as Thomism, is a a synthesis of the Greco-Roman and Christian traditions, which is remarkably successful in incorporating new classical pagan learning into the traditions of Christianity, which had been established in the years since the breakup of the Roman Empire. Now, Aquinas was a priest. He was an Italian Dominican who spent most of his career teaching at the University of Paris. and. While it was a general tendency in the Catholic Church to try and dominate the political and the social life of Western Europe, it was uneven in its success in doing so. It had political advances and political failures. But intellectually, the Church did dominate the culture of Western Europe, particularly during the Middle Ages. And the one figure who is the kind of symbol of this success that the Church found in synthesizing Athens and Jerusalem, and bringing that synthesis to bear as a sort of intellectual foundation for the culture of the Middle Ages, Aquinas is most conspicuous and perhaps the the greatest um, example of that sort of a tendency. (coughs) Now he was, in many respects, an intellectual, not revolutionary, but an intellectual pathfinder. He's a sort of pioneer. In the mid-13th century, when Aquinas is working, New texts, particularly texts of Aristotle, are being reincorporated and rediscovered in the Western tradition. And Aristotle is the most important figure for Aquinas. In some ways, people have said that Aquinas is a, in the process of baptizing Aristotle. And while that's an overstatement, there's a certain degree of truth in that. Aristotle is, for the first time, being recovered from prim- primarily Arabic sources that have held on to the tradition of classical learning. These Arabic sources are being translated into Latin or, or being retranslated back into the, something like the original Greek, and from there it is being brought into the universities. Aquinas is most important in reading Aristotle, interpreting Aristotle, and using Aristotle for the purposes of developing and articulating a new and intellectually rigorous, intellectually sophisticated Christianity. Now, Prior to Aristotle, or prior to Aquinas, the reason why this is so revolutionary, or why this is such an innovation, is that Christianity, since the time of Augustine, had been saturated in the Platonic tradition. Clearly, Plato is the most important and influential philosopher for St. Augustine. And from the time of Augustine and the fall of the Roman Empire through, oh, I don't know, the year 1100 or 1200 anyway, the primary influence, the the, the main connection between Christianity and Greece is to be found in the very limited number of Platonic works that are available. This is the sort of orthodoxy that is, that is somewhat ossified in Catholic thinking prior to the time of, Aqu- of Aquinas. What Aquinas is going to do is shift away from that Augustinian and Platonic tradition into a tradition that's Aristotelian. Aristotelian in the sense, first of all, that it's concerned more than uh, the Augustinian tradition with concrete things. Second of all, Aquinas is going to be concerned with syllogistic logic. Logic and the syllogism are key ideas in scholastic thinking. The syllogism is the medium through which the scholastic thinker makes his arguments and articulates his views. So it has a characteristic form which is, of course, dear to the heart of Aristotle, one of the great logicians that ever lived and certainly the one who worked out the theory of the syllogism and the idea of syllogistic reasoning. And in addition to that, Aquinas borrows uh, a tendency from Aristotle towards system building, towards a sort of encyclopedism. Those of you who are familiar with Aquinas' great works, the Summe, the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologicae, can find that it is one of the most extraordinary and vast intellectual edifices you can imagine. It goes on seemingly for miles, volume after volume, question after question, covering every conceivable problem in morals and politics and theology and physics and ethics. It is a generally encyclopedic work. And I think that while this encyclopedic tendency is congenial to the mind of Aquinas, much of that tendency is reinforced by the fact that Aristotle had already attempted a kind of encyclopedic intellectual project before. So it's bringing this encyclopedic tendency to Christianity that makes the uh, the Thomist synthesis so powerful and so important. That's certainly one of the most important things that this does. But Aquinas' borrowings from the classical tradition are not to be understood as merely baptizing Aristotle. He is a very profoundly learned figure. Aquinas knows the entire classical tradition, or at least such elements of the classical tradition as were accessible and for which there there were texts in the mid 13th century. For example, most of Plato he doesn't have access to, but he does have access to things like Cicero, which is gonna be very important for his understanding of natural law, and for certain elements in the classical tradition. I'd like to discuss those because they're worth considering. Um, From Plato, I would say, Aristotle, uh, Aquinas borrowed a surprising and kind of easy to miss element in his thinking. If you've ever looked at the Summe, there, or in other works of Aristotle, or even other scholastics, you will find that they are often in a question and answer form. Question number one, does God exist, or is he unified, or or plural, Uh, question number two, and then he'll give five or six possible answers, and in the process process of giving these answers, he will refute what are called straw men. He will set up bad alternative answers and eliminate those answers, and then at the end of his process of question and answer, or what what at least is in the form of question and answer, we will come to the true answer at the bottom of that, and then after we get the true answer to his first question, what we will get is... Movement on to a next question. So what we see is a question and answer format. The difference between Augustine or Aquinas and Plato is that this question and answer format has been frozen. It is petrified. It has fossilized Plato. The living quality of Plato, the uh, the open-endedness, the playfulness, all right, the, the living voice has been taken out. So instead of having what so what we get in Plato Living human beings asking and answering questions, involving themselves in the pursuit of the truth. What we have in Aquinas is the disembodied form of questioning, and then a series of answers, and then at the bottom of these series answers, a very unplatonic or unsocratic final answer, the real answer. So I would be inclined to say that what Aquinas borrows from the Platonic tradition, besides uh, you know certain Augustinian elements, is this question and answer format. I think that's real important, and it's easy to overlook. Right? because uh, the style of Aquinas is so far removed from the careful, dramatic irony of Plato. A fin- uh, another thing that Aquinas borrows from the classical tradition, and this is also very important, is the Ciceronian idea of natural law. In De Republica, Cicero talks about natural law as being a moral law, a normative law accessible Uh, through the light of human reason, independent of any revelation, independent of any knowledge that is gained from scripture or from God's revealing of himself. Cicero thinks that this natural law, which is clearly a stoic idea, is a cosmopolitan set of normative rules accessible to all human beings as rational animals. And while Aquinas will not limit his conception of law to natural law, he'll add to it things like divine law and eternal law because he's a committed Christian, what he will do is incorporate this idea as a sort of substratum of his theory of law, and this will allow him to use the Stoic intellectual tradition to good purpose. In other words, it's another way of Aquinas incorporating the classical tradition. He is not merely uh, the canonical interpreter interpreter of Aristotle. He is, in fact, a great synthetic mind, in many respects uh, uh, analogous to Aristotle himself, in the sense that he brings together disparate elements of of a varied intellectual tradition and forms them into one coherent whole. So Aquinas is a very eclectic borrower. He is very self-conscious in what he takes, and he has a complete and thorough mastery of the entire intellectual tradition that leads up to him. In other words, insofar as mid-13th century intellectuals had access to the texts of the ancient philosophers, Aquinas knew them all and knew them thoroughly. In addition to that, in addition to borrowing and merging certain elements of the classical tradition, Aquinas is completely in control of the tradition of of Christian thinking that begins with, of course, the scriptures themselves, but carries through the patristic doctors of the church, right, the early church writers, and certainly through Augustine, and then, of course, through earlier uh, Catholic writers such as Anselm and his ontological argument, Abelard various kinds of logicians that were contemporaries or near contemporaries of him uh, of Aquinas himself so what Aquinas is doing is bringing together all parts of two separate intellectual traditions and force and not quite forcing them but finding a harmonious a felicitous way of braiding these things together and with the difficulty here lies in the fact that He's trying to square the circle. Faith and reason ultimately don't mesh very nicely. And I, I must confess to a certain suspicion of those systems in which it, all the gears are made to mesh precisely. One always has an idea that something is either being overlooked or tendentiously misread or perhaps unintentionally misread. But when, sir, I've al- I always come away with the feeling when I read Aquinas that something is being overlooked and that in fact, this is a little too pat and in fact, it works a little too well but to give credit where credit is due. This is an amazing intellectual tour de force, bringing together the tradition of Jerusalem, the tradition of Athens in such a way as to make it intellectually respectable and to add a new and powerful intellectual note to the development of Christianity. In some respects, the Catholic Church was harmed by the tremendous success of Aquinas because it tended to ossify the intellectual outlook of the Church. Once they got it right, it was a sort of poisoned fruit Right, which made it very hard to accommodate the new developments in modern natural science that will come after the time of Galileo. So, Aquinas's achievement is more synthetic than creative. Um, he is not a is not the sort of inventive thinker that will come up with a completely new conception of the world. He is much more like literally a scholastic thinker that spends a great time absorbing and synthesizing a complex and not completely coherent intellectual tradition into something that makes intellectual sense, at least insofar as he's able to round off the sharp edges. Now, in addition to these classical authors, Aquinas is also in great debt to his teacher, or to his most important teacher, Albert the Great. And and of course now he's Saint Albert the Great, one of the doctors of the church, but Albert, coming in the generation ahead of Aquinas, was one of the first thinkers to try and incorporate Aristotle into Christianity, but his interpretation of Aristotle is relatively superficial. In other words, while uh, Albert was able to incorporate some of these ideas, he wasn't able to put together the big synthesis that Aquinas was able to formulate. And in addition to having Albert give him access to uh, uh, to Aristotle and giving him access to uh, a wide body of Christian learning. Albert the Great was very interested in Islamic and Jewish learning, particularly Islamic and Jewish Aristotelianism. So they are familiar with Maimonides and his Guide to the Perplexed, which is an attempt to get to navigate and to get through the intellectual minefield that is presented to the religious believer by Greek rationalism. Another in powerful influences. Is Averroes. Averroes is, is an Islamic interpreter of Aristotle that is trying to u- that is trying to reconcile Islam, one of the religions of the book, with the Greek classical tradition. So what I'm driving at is something like this: during the 13th century, around the time of Aquinas, and perhaps even a little bit before, the great monotheisms—Islam, Judaism, Christianity—are all reacting. To the gradual rediscovery, the gradual reinfusion of Aristotle and that element in the classical tradition back into the religions of the book. And uh, highly intellectual Jews like Maimonides, highly intellectual Ar- uh, Arabs or um, Muslims like Averroes are engaged in fundamentally the same project as Aquinas and uh, uh, the other great doctors of the church. They are trying to create an intellectually respectable version of monotheism which will not lose the attention and which will not uh, diminish in intellectual stature compared with this new uh, with this new classical learning one might be tempted to say that in the 13th century we had a mini or premature or early version of the renaissance in other words if you remember what the renaissance is it's a reinfusion of classical pagan learning greco-roman learning back into the western tradition May I suggest that this is not an event that happens in the mid-15th century in Italy, but rather it's a gradual process that happens in the centuries after uh, after the Crusades, in which this information about the classical tradition gradually seeps back into the Western tradition. The reason why we don't, as a rule, note the 13th century as being a time of tremendous intellectual ferment is because the Orthodox theology, and by implication the Orthodox political system, and the orthodox uh, social structure, you know, feudalism that's connected with it, is not endangered at least by this early infusion of Western learning, uh, of classical learning. Because of that fact, um, we don't notice it. It isn't the same kind of explosive event in the history of the world. And the reason why we don't see an explosive result when we mix these two volatile traditions together—the tradition of Athens and the tradition of Jerusalem—is because Aristotle finds a way of pulling the fangs of the monster. He he prevents. Uh, Aristotelian learning from being interpreted, or at least uh, he's to some extent successful in having Aristotelian learning um, viewed as being consistent with faith and consistent with revealed religion. It would have been very easy, and in fact in in 1277, um, his doctrines were at least to to some extent condemned because it was thought by the hierarchy of the church, which was committed to this Augustinian platonic interpretation of Christianity, that Aristotle was a pagan and a morally undermining influence. So what's important about Aquinas is that he makes Aristotle, sometimes by reading him in very ingenious ways and sometimes by reading him in very disingenuous ways, what he does is he makes Aristotle appear to be intellectually friendly or at least somewhat consistent with Christianity. For that reason, we don't get a break up, we don't get a sharp discontinuity in the intellectual tradition. What we see is a merging of intellectual traditions which looks easy and effortless and in fact is exactly the opposite, is exceedingly difficult to do. The 15th century was unable to do it and that's why we have the thing called the Renaissance that's why it turns into a separate area but in fact it's not that in the four- in 14th century Italy all of a sudden these texts are coming in and then we have tremendous political and moral and social cataclysms as a result rather it's rather than being a process the reintroduction of classical learning is a, or rather than being an event the reintroduction of classical learning is a process and one of the things that makes this process seamless and smooth during the Middle Ages is the great genius of Thomas Aquinas. Right, that's what's remarkable about this guy. I don't think we would give him high marks for creativity, but as a synthetic intellect, there's just, there are very, very few that are in the same league. Aristotle himself, I think, is probably comparable. Now, within scholasticism, within this tradition of uh, professional intellectuals working for the church, remember that in the Middle Ages, during the Dark Ages as well, such intellectual life as Europe had was dominated by the church. The church had a monopoly on literacy for the most part, had a monopoly on uh, books, had a monopoly on high culture and high learning. And for that reason, during the Middle Ages, um, Western Europe had more similarities with other high religious traditions, things, things like Hinduism and Confucianism, than it would later on after the modern scientific revolution. After the rise of modern science, when, intellect, when intellectual life becomes secular, when it splits away from the sacred, when we have a domain of, sa- of profane knowledge and a separate domain of sacred knowledge, then Western Europe becomes something unique. It's sui generis. Right? There's nothing like it in the he- whole history of the world. On the other hand, during the High Middle Ages, when uh, profane and sacred knowledge were seen as being consistent, and if not, Perfectly overlapping, at least not in conflict with each other. What we have is a combination of intellectual uh, organization and orientation combined with the administration of government and the legitimation of the political life of Western Europe, which is very much like the function performed by Confucianism in China or Hinduism in. India. So this connection of the sacred and the secular that we find in the Middle Ages is characteristic of most of the highly developed pre-industrial cultures, and there are many interesting and rewarding kind of comparative historical observations to make there. What is interesting in particular about scholasticism, I mean, to look at it as one uh, unified and kind of separate tendency, is their emphasis on logic. And of course, this is where the classical tradition will be very important, the tradition of Stoic logic, and of course, the Aristotelian syllogism will be extremely important. And Aquinas himself, naturally enough, is going to be very much Um, concerned with the structure of thought. Logic will be the the foundation of all the other sciences that makes all of human reason and uh, the uh, project of natural knowledge possible. And what we will get in Aquinas and his concern with logic is an attempt to mediate all disputes. Um, Like Aristotle, Aquinas is by temperament a splitter of differences. He's. he's, I mean, it would be wrong to call him an intellectual compromiser. Rather, I would say he's the kind of guy who invents a new and handy distinction to reconcile apparently warring parties or apparent disputes between people that he thinks ought to be getting along. For example, within the tradition of scholastic logic and within the tradition of uh, Platonic idealism, which is so important in the development of early Christianity, um, there is always the problem of the forms, or as it's rephrased in, within the logic of scholasticism, the problem of universals. And Aquinas takes a position on this, tries to find his way through the labyrinth, and it's worth thinking about this problem first of all because it's one of the contributions that Aquinas tries to make but more importantly because it gives you a flavor a sense of what scholasticism is like now scholasticism on the whole is generally uh accused of being a dry logic chopping rather tedious and unpleasant uh intellectual activity and i can confirm for you i can confirm for you that that is true (laughs) that it is dry and logic chopping and it is extremely dull I mean, occasionally you see a really grand insight and there is occasionally uh, a fine intellectual point buried beneath this, m- this mountain of words. But its reputation for being a kind of embalmed uh, <laughs> uh, form of the pursuit of knowledge as a sort of dry and lifeless tendency, there is, alas, a great deal of truth in that. I mean, 10 minutes of reading it and you will probably close okay. the book and look for a, a secondary commentary on it. It's a lot easier to get through. Well, think of it this way. The scholastics have been having very, or the the tradition of Christian logicians have been having arguments about the nature of universals. That is to say, when we apply the word, I don't know, paper to this piece of paper, or to this piece of paper, or to some other piece of paper, how is it that we apply to that particular entity, all right, the general term, paper, or when I see one dog, a collie, and another dog, an Irish setter, and another dog, a bulldog, how is it that I decide to call them all dog? Well, Plato would have us believe, for example, that they all participate in the form of dogness, right? And that there's some form of the dog somewhere that allows us to attribute dogness to each of these instantiations. From an idealist perspective, this is a very, this is a very attractive kind of a move because it allows you to connect logic, the way in which we, gla- we class together th- kinds of things with ontology, right? And there should be some sort of isomorphism between our logic and our grammar, the way we talk about things, and the things themselves. So that platonic move, the idea that there's a sort of form or that there's a true real universal, right, somewhere outside of space and time, that doctrine within scholasticism is called realism. And by realism in the, 13, in the scholastic tradition, we don't mean what we mean by realism today. Today, realism involves representing the world as it actually appears to human beings. Back then, realism is a doctrine which says that general terms really refer to some real entity, capital R, Platonic real, that is somehow outside of space and time. This sort of position is generally associated with the early, earlier Augustinian tradition in Christianity, and probably its most profound exponent is Saint Anselm. Anselm is the one who made the ontological argument: God is that which nothing greater c- that God is that entity with with uh, beyond which nothing greater c- can be conceived. Right, and tries to make the the, uh, the argument that the idea of God itself is unavoidable and necessary and cannot logically be denied. That's sort of a self-contained idealist thinking about theology, trying to bootstrap yourself right from thinking itself right into a positive theology is a typically Platonic slash Christian idea. You can see the Platonic elements in it in it's kind of epistemological and ontological realism and you can see this classical tradition being brought to the service of Christianity. Well, that's the one extreme in this problem of universals. The other extreme is developed over a, a period of generations because it takes a long time to work out. But the other extreme in this problem of universals is called nominalism. Nominalism is the doctrine that all the dogs that we see, the collie, the German sh- uh, shepherd, the Irish setter, that they all, we, all call, we call them all dogs on account of the fact that dog is the name for a set of things and that it's actually just a, a shorthand way of referring to the set of all things that have four legs and eat meat and you know come when you call them. In other words, if you can imagine, a contingent set of uh, of, uh, attributes that we attribute to all the things we call dogs. In other words, it's a very Wittgensteinian kind of a move. Uh, The great exponent of this kind of a a way of resolving the problem of general names and turning them into just a shorthand for names as sets of things is William of Ockham. Right? And William of Ockham is gonna have tremendous influence on the development of things like empiricism later on. Hobbes really likes William of Ockham. Think about what his theory of language is like. Hume will really like William of Ockham. In other words, you could think of Hume as being the secularized version of that. Right? It has a very empirical tendency towards it. So between this, the Scylla and Charybdis of realism and nominalism, we have the great figure of Thomas Aquinas. And what Thomas does is not exactly resolve the problem because I'm not convinced that there is any real satisfactory resolution to this logical conundrum. But what Thomas does is say, I'm going to try and smooth the waters. I'm going to adopt a position called moderate realism. And of course, virtue is a mean between two vices, those of you that have read the Nicomachean Ethics. So you know that this is a typically Aristotelian thing to do. Split the difference, and if you can't split the difference in a satisfactory way, then invent some new category or invent some new distinction that allows both people to be right in a, little, in a part of the way. Which is, a, I mean, if you can imagine this is a sort of microcosm for what uh, Aquinas does as a whole career, right? So what he does is say, look, I don't believe that there's any self-subsisting Platonic form of dogness that all the dogs participate in. I also don't want an empty set name that, like we're going to get from the nominalist. What he says is that within the German Shepherd or the Bulldog or the Irish Setter, imminent within the specimen is the general species or is the general um, form of the of dogness. In other words, it's not somehow separate from the individual dogs we see, but the individual dogs. Uh, but when we refer to the, to a, a set of dogs as being dogs, we're not just saying that they fall within that nominalistic set. Each of them has imminently within them that property which Plato wants to place in the realm of the forms or someplace like that. Now this doesn't entirely resolve the problem. Convinced nominalists are not gonna buy this solution, gonna say it's a pseudo solution, and convinced realists are gonna say, well, look, you're giving in too much to the nominalists. What's great about Aquinas is that he doesn't entirely satisfy anybody, but that a fair-minded person coming to it says, well, that's a reasonable way of trying to solve this problem since it doesn't have any, there's no obvious way out anyway, to try and give credit to both sides, synthesize them. In some ways, he reminds me of Hegel too, right? Synthesizing two opposite positions into some third position which takes what he understands to be best from the others. So Aquinas' approach to nominalism and realism by itself is interesting, but it's just a footnote to his philosophy. The reason I bring it up is because it instantiates the kind of posture that Aquinas has towards all previous intellectual traditions. He's not an intellectual destroyer like Nietzsche. He's not intellectually creative like, I don't know, like Plato. In fact, he's systematic and encyclopedic and he makes everybody happy. He harmonizes all the different parts of the orchestra. And uh, this is a particular time in Western history when that's of great importance. Averroism and the reintroduction of Aristotle into a high cultural discourse means that somehow Christianity is going to have to confront it, like it or not. All right. Now I'd like to move from this particular example to his greatest works, the two Summe, which are which you will probably never get to because they are vast. They go on for volumes, and they are huge books, and they are very technical and rather dry, and they are encyclopedic, so they are in some respects daunting. You, you, don't, you almost don't even know where to start. So rather than give you a complete overview of these, I'll, I'll talk about some of their main points, and then I'll take you to certain parts of this that are worth your investigation, that perhaps more have more relevance to the contemporary world than some others. In the first case, we have the, the Summa Contra Gentiles. And the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, Gentiles, or Gentiles in Latin, um, it just means nations. So what it is, it's, it's, uh, it's an exhortation, a protreptic towards Christianity directed towards non-Christian believers. So in other words, it's one of the great apologies for Christianity, or in this particular case, Catholicism. And it is intended as a sort of, justification of Christianity. In some respects, you might want to say that it's the medieval version of the apology of uh, Justin Martyr, if those of you know that first, Christi- first century Christian document. Um, what he does in a very intellectual way is to show that Christianity is, if not completely n- necessitated by the operations of natural reason, is minimally never in conflict with the operations of natural reason. So no naturally reasonable pagan can, have ju- can with justice say that I cannot accept this because it conflicts with what the light of reason guides me toward. Faith and reason are not identical. They do not overlap perfectly. They are like Venn diagrams that have a partial overlap. Some of the things that reason can tell you all right, will also be affirmed by the knowledge that we get from theology. Some of the things that theology tells you will be confirmed by the knowledge we get from natural reason, philosophy. But they have two different domains. And they do not address entirely the same issues. So for example, in the view of Aquinas, it is possible for philosophy to demonstrate that God exists. He believes that there are ontological proofs of God's existence. But he doesn't believe that philosophy can show that that God exists and is a trinity. If you want to believe that God is a trinity, then you have to go to scripture. That can only be gotten from theology. So there's an imperfect overlap between the two. Um, Beyond the the Summa Contragentiles, which is a kind of controversial work, and incidentally, it's worth noting that the Summa Gentiles assumes that the person reading, the person to whom that book is addressed, it assumes that they have some knowledge of Arabic philosophy which is to say that they know the Arabic versions of Aristotle because the uh, Islamic tradition is the main bearer of classical tr- uh, philosophy to the Middle Ages. So the fact that it, it's assuming that tells you something about the intellectual climate of the age, which is very much worth your note. It's, we have a tendency, especially when we study the Middle Ages, to concentrate almost exclusively on Christian and Catholic thought, and I think that is a great error. Right? We, we lose the, the things that, are, that come from outside the West, if you want to view Spain as being outside the West because the, the intellectual tradition of Islam is very powerful there. Now, the Summa Theologiae is the greatest achievement of Aquinas, and it is still the canonical, philosophical-slash-theological book of Catholicism. And he does a couple of important things there. Now, to try and, and introduce you to, to Aquinas' Summa is like taking you to the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, this is a vacation, it's not, you can't make this your life, so I can't take you through the whole book page by page, question by question, would be here forever. The best I can do is to take you to certain parts of it which people have always appreciated, which people have always found interesting or worthwhile or controversial, and say this will give you some sort of sampling of what the whole book is like. If you want to pursue this, I mean, you, are, you can do so at your leisure, and perhaps at your peril too, because it'll be quite a bit of time before you finish such a project, but it's worth looking at some of the more influential elements of the Summa so you can get a sense of how Aquinas' mind works and what his influence will be like. In the first case, he gives the famous five ways. Five ways of demonstrating the existence of God. And almost everyone has commented on this. Uh, Kant found this a very interesting exercise. Uh, most of the idealist philosophers have been impressed with this, or, and the empiricist philosophers have been magi- uh, magnificently unimpressed with this. And the five ways in which he demonstrates the, the existence of God he believes are accessible to natural reason, independent of theology or scripture. Um, The first three ways Kant called cosmological proofs. Um, The first proof is the prime mover proof. We notice when we look around the world that things move. But things only move when something moves them. So the question is, what what creates the first motion? If you think of the world as being a series of moving dominoes, not of course composed of dominoes, but their relations of cause and effect like dominoes, well, who or what pushes the first domino? And whatever it is that pushes the first domino, that causes the first motion, that has to be motionless, unmoved, it's the unmoved mover. And that unmoved mover, as Aquinas will point out, is what everybody means by God. And if you don't believe in God, then you don't believe things move, and clearly things move so the whole idea is silly. Of course God exists. We have the prime mover argument. Uh, The next argument he makes is connected to that. It's the idea of efficient cause. We notice that everything in the physical world uh, proceeds from an efficient cause. What's the first efficient cause? The first efficient cause will be God. So the the argument from efficient cause will be his second way of proving that God exists. The third way will be the idea of possible and necessary beings. Now this is a sort of Cartesian move. When you read the Discourse on Method, you'll find that Descartes employs this um, when he, Uses the principle of non-vacuous contrast, but what Aquinas says here is that look, we notice that all the things in the world are not ne- in the physical world, the world of space and time, are, are not necessary; they are possible, which means that they come into being and they go out of being. They they don't essentially remain; they don't have being with a capital B, but. If we have the idea in our head of things being possible, but not necessary, of participating in becoming, well, by the principle of non-vacuous contrast, if you want that to mean anything, since the whole world is composed of contingent and possible beings, there must by implication be a non-contingent, essential, necessary being. And as Aquinas will tell you, this necessary being is what all agree is God. So, the fact of the contingency of the world proves that there has to be something like necessity, and there will be only one necessary thing, and that will be God, the prime mover, the one that sets the whole world in motion. These are the first three proofs. The fourth proof is a departure from that. It's the proof of the ideas of perfection. What Aquinas says there is that the idea of perfection at all, some uh, some math homework is better than others, some pie is better than others, some cars are better than others. They have all these qualities. So, uh, things have qualities, and one of the qualities is goodness, and some things are better than others. The idea of degrees of perfection, and this is an Augustinian platonic idea, implies a final perfection. In other words, if we have a kind of mathematical limit, well, we know what the limit is, even if we, here in space and time, never a- achieve that limit. That limit, that ultimate perfection will be God. And the final argument that he makes is the telos of nature and the telos of humanity. And what he means by that is essentially the argument from design, which has been a very important element in a philosophical theology, theology long before Aquinas. And of course, later on in, its, in, the, in the history of philosophical theology, this argument from design will be hammered by David Hume right? I think Darren did a very good job of showing Hume's objection to the arguments from design. But he offers Aquinas offers these five arguments as indisputable logical proof, accessible purely to natural reason, independent of faith in scripture. And he says, now we've solved the problem in more than one way of whether God exists. So philosophy can tell you that God exists. After that, of course, he's willing to wave the white flag. He doesn't have that sort of Platonic or logical hubris which says logic uberalis, philosophy uberalis. For Aquinas, philosophy has a limited but autonomous domain, the domain of natural reason. But there are truths, there are sacred truths that are not accessible through natural reason that can only be gotten through scripture. And as a consequence of that, theology is a supplement To to philosophy, and philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. In other words, what Aquinas is doing in some ways is being like an intellectual circus performer. He's bringing in the intellectual elephants of the classical tradition and getting them to do all these Christian tricks. And it's quite an amazing thing to do. You wouldn't think that elephants could do that. So he brings in Aristotle and shows that Aristotle is really kind of a Christian in a way. Right? I mean, you can see how Dante is similarly going to put the pagan philosophers in the first circle of hell. I mean, they're not quite as bad as the other pagans. On the other hand, they don't quite make it into heaven. So in some respects, it's the same sort of an intellectual tendency. Now, connected with Aquinas' thinking in the the Summa is an ontological doctrine called the great chain of being. Now, this is very important for subsequent development of hierarchical political theory. It's worth thinking about because it tells us a lot about uh, the, uh, the theory of Western politics. Great chain of being holds that God has constructed the world in a perfectly and completely hierarchical way. He's on top, being God, and he's the unmoved mover and causes the universe, the final cause of the world, all that sort of thing. And above him, uh, below him are the various levels of angels, incorporeal bodies that God has created. He's given them rational souls and various kinds of qualities that make them superior to human beings, but lesser than God. Below the angels, we find human beings, because at this time we're still in a pre-modern science. So human beings get a special creation. They're at the top of God's creation. And then below that, we get all the other animals and plants. Well, actually, uh, we get God on top, and then we get the angels, And and then we get human beings. But within human beings, there are gradations. At the top of everything, we get the king, the lawful monarch. And the reason why governments are legitimate or illegitimate in Aquinas' eyes is because they are consistent with natural law and consistent with divine ordinance. So if a ruler is a legitimate ruler, he rules by the grace of God, by the dispensation of God. And you can see how this will later on in its career be turned into the divine right of kings and a defense of Catholic absolutism. Right? I mean, they are closely connected. If you're going to say that that we legitimize our government with reference to some theological notions, well then We're going to find out that this is a very dangerous tendency on account of the fact that it won't allow for much flexibility later on. Um, the uh, The great chain of being then organizes all existing reality into a hierarchy and that means that everybody knows exactly where they are and they were put there for some good reason. It is one of the tributes to the static qualities of feudal society that the way in which it legitimizes itself is with this great chain of being idea. God made the king a king, and that's why he should tell you what to do. And if you're a serf, the reason why you should do what you're told is because God made you a serf for a particular reason. He put you at particularly that slot in the great chain of being, and he doesn't want you to be a rock, elsewise you would be a rock, and he doesn't want you to be the king, so you shouldn't rock the political boat. If the king is wicked, well, God will take care of that. It is not your place to to judge that. You perform your function, stay within your sphere, and things will work out just fine. So this great chain of being is an extremely conservative, right, in some ways, backward looking idea. It is perhaps the, the last, uh, uh, this and I, perhaps uh, uh, Charles the, uh, uh, James I in England, uh, the, the tradition from Aquinas right through James I of Catholic absolutism and of the connection of theology and politics, I think ha- has uh, one of its classical formulations in this great chain of being argument. And politics naturally flows out of this ontology. Um, Uh, Aquinas prefers following Aristotle, because in many ways what we're doing is taking Aristotle's politics and connecting with Augustine's city of God here. Well, what we're gonna do is uh, Aquinas is gonna say, he prefers a mixed polity, the same kind of, an, of a polity that Aristotle approves of in the politics and he would prefer it to be monarchical because he thinks that's the most satisfactory way of arranging a society but of course the king governs only through the grace of God and his ordinances or laws as positive laws will be judged by whether they are consistent with God's laws no practical black letter law is in fact valid if it is inconsistent with God's law with God's revealed will or with natural law which is a subset of the laws constructed by God. Uh, Aquinas' contributions to the theory of law are noteworthy and we ought to think about them just briefly here. Um, He distinguishes four kinds of law. Uh, The first kind is eternal law and that's just the idea of God's providence. In other words, if you believe in God, it's hard to think that God is so abstracted from the world unless you're an Epicurean that he doesn't have some sort of providence for the universe and make it go. If there isn't some sort of design or idea or telos behind it. And he says, just to believe in God involves some sort of affirmation of eternal law. The second kind of law is natural law. And natural law will be, is one of these derivations from Cicero. Natural lo- law is, the, is that those normative rules which are accessible simply through the use of natural reason. Um, for example, uh, a proposition of natural law would be that it is evil to kill your parents and you find that you don't have to go to scripture to find that out, anyone who just investigates the nature of the human condition will be able to derive that normative rule. So natural law will be the subset of God's moral rules that are accessible without scripture. In addition to natural law, we'll also have human law, which will be the practical black letter law of any given society. That's what the Greeks called nomos. And the final kind of law will be divine law, and that's the law that we get directly from Revelation. So that will also be a subset of eternal law, but it'll be very specifically derived from Scripture. Those four kinds of laws. Now, the important thing here is that this natural law idea has a tremendous influence on the development of Western culture. It is not original with Aquinas. To be honest, almost nothing is original with Aquinas. But what he does is synthesize and bring together this Stoic tradition and make it very influential in Catholic thought. And I think for the most part it has had good results. Uh, natural law theory is alive and well. Right? Let's just think about this as we conclude. Or just take us some stabs at that. Um, you could say that Aquinas baptizes Cicero at the same time that he baptizes Aristotle. And this idea of natural law is the foundation, for example, for things like conscientious objection in time of war. I mean, what do you say? The government tells you that you have to go down to the draft board, and you say, no, I'm not gonna do that. And when you go before the judge, the judge asks you why you're not at the draft board, and you say, because the draft law is wrong. And when he asks you, well, how did you find that out? All you can say is, I think it violates god's universal ordinances for how people should behave i mean what else can we gesture at think of all the of all the traditions of civil disobedience that come out of gandhi and martin luther king why is it we're breaking the law because god told us not to or because god told us to we're not supposed to follow this kind of law now it's i mean in some ways it can be easily seen as a sort of a dodge for people's civic obligations. On the other hand, there's a real danger in eliminating this idea of a natural law and an individual right to conscience. What you get when you give up on the ability to, to judge positive civic law on the basis of some kind of universal moral obligation accessible to all rational people, what you get is a complete obligation to obey the state then. Right? What you get is that Kantian, Hegelian, German tradition of idealistic domination by the state. And there is at least as much danger there as there is in this kind of anarchic tendency towards judging and rejecting the law of your own society. So natural law arguments are alive and well. Um, and I don't know that we would want to dispense with them. Think, for example, just as a, I mean, the most glaring example, think of the Nuremberg Trials at the end of the Second World War. We put the Nazis on trial, and we found some of them guilty, in some cases some of them innocent, of various kinds of crimes. Now there's only one difficulty here, and Stalin pointed this difficulty out. None of our laws, none of the laws of Russia, or the United States, or England, or France, apply to German citizens while they're in Germany, or any place else for that matter. So what law are we trying them by? In other words, when when you bring them to a court, what's the point of having a court and a trial if there's no law? And if there is a law, will somebody tell me where it's written down? What law are we talking about? Well, the implication that I, I mean, I can't draw any other implication that it violates natural law, our general consensus about what counts as good or acceptable human behavior. Atrocities are bad, whether there's a law in your statutes that says it's bad or not. Well, here we're faced with kind of a moral dilemma. Many people have reservations about this idea of natural law. They think that the idea that we can derive normative rules simply by the exercise of natural reason, they find that Implausible, hard to believe. The difficulty is is that if, if, like Stalin, you find that hard to believe, what do you want to do? Um, Break down and admit that they were right, that politics is only a question of power, and just shoot them without a trial? If you go through a trial, you're wedded to the idea that there's some sort of law that applies, and it can't be some positive black letter law within the code of Germany. So I think that natural law arguments are here to stay. They are not likely to disappear anytime soon, and they serve Oddly enough, because I don't think Aquinas intended them this way, as a sort of bulwark of freedom of the individual and freedom of individual conscience, which I think is very non-scholastic or contra-scholastic, it turns out that this doctrine, which is incorporated into Aquinas' theory of law, has a tremendously complex and unexpectedly liberating career in the subsequent history of Western philosophy. For this alone, Aquinas would have been the great contributor to legal theory. But in addition to this contribution to legal theory, what he does in the Summa is encyclopedically inquire into theology and ontology and metaphysics and ethics and brings them together in a synthesis which is profound, if not original, and influential, if not entirely accessible to us. So Aquinas, while it is formidable and intimidating, is worth your perusal. It is worth a little bit of reading on your time especially if you can find a way of just getting access to those parts. I think it's questions 96 through 101 of the Summa um, that deal with law. That by itself, it's it's a short passage. If you are trying to read and keep up with these lectures, that I would recommend as a first choice. And in doing that, you will have gotten the best out of the the Summa, the uh, the most influential topics and the themes most relevant to contemporary philosophical concerns.